Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 348. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lended FinTech. Before we get started, I want to talk about the 10th annual Lended FinTech USA event. We are so excited to be back in the financial capital of the world, New York City, in person, on May 25th and 26th. It feels like fintech is on fire right now with so much change happening, and we will be distilling all that for you at New York's biggest fintech event of the year. We have our best lineup of keynote speakers ever with leaders from many of the most successful fintechs and incumbent banks. This is shaping up to be our biggest event ever as sponsorship support is off the charts. You know you need to be there, so find out more and register at lendit.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Stuart Sopp. He is the CEO and founder of Current. Now, Current is a super interesting company. They are one of the largest digital banks in the fintech space. And I would argue one of the most interesting companies in all of fintech. A lot of things I didn't realize before starting research on this episode, Current actually built their own core banking system. And that, to me, was super interesting in and of itself. Stuart gets into the reasons why they did that. And interestingly enough, they're also putting a lot of effort into blockchain and DeFi. We talk about that in depth as well. We talk about influencer marketing, which is, I'd say there's probably no other company in fintech quite doing as much as influencer marketing as current. They were really been doing this for years now, and I think that's super interesting as well. Stuart talks about you know, the banking landscape, the competitive landscape that they operate in, and what the vision is for the future of current. It was a fascinating episode. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Stuart. Thanks for having me, Peter. My pleasure. So let's get started um, by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. You've had, a, I would say, a, an interesting career working with some of the biggest names in finance. So give us some of the highlights. Yeah, some of the highlights, probably lowlights now. You know, I was, uh, <laughs> given where the market is, I was a trader for many years. I was a foreign exchange short-term interest rate trader, started off in forwards in 99, moved between a few centers, London, Sydney, Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong, and then New York. And in banks like Deutsche Bank, you know, that used to be a good name. Right. It was, it was good, good, de- <laughs> good days when I was there. Maybe not so much now. All these Russian sanctions. And then Citi and Morgan Stanley, most recently, I resigned from that previous life uh, around 2014. Your next gig was current, right? So tell us a little bit about the founding story there. What did you see? Towards the end of my financial career, trading, managing traders, those kind of things, I got introduced to Bitcoin, the white paper from the now CTO. He was a young man then. He's definitely not anymore. And he showed me this, the white paper in 2010, 2011. And so being a currency guy, being interested in macro trading, all the rest of it really unlocked a few things for me. One is access to banking. Two is that banking was fundamentally going to change. We went from, I believed then I was like, okay, we're going digital money because we had digital money. Fiat money's digital mm-hmm. for 30, 40 years, but programmable money. And it's going to be really, really interesting how there's going to be this next leap. And then it's like sovereignless, right? So it's cross-border and all this other stuff. Being an FX guy, I was like, wow. I want to get involved in this. Mm-hmm. And so really, I came out trying to find a problem to solve around crypto, really. That was really what I was trying to do. And then crypto in those days was just Bitcoin and Ripple. 
And we just were on the ICO of Ethereum that, that just came out in 2013. And so really the beginning of current was like, okay, there's like a bunch of problems like access to banking value that the incumbent banking system was going to yield for most people over the next 10, 20 years and sort of like the fairness of it, I guess. And then the wealth inequality that was a part of, right? Building the efficiency mechanism of this monetary policy system being part of that and how that was driving a wedge through society as well. And so there was an opportunity to create a company that could maybe take advantage of some new tech, solve some of the old legacy problems of people who weren't included, and then maybe try and make a bit of a difference in the, in the right direction <laughs> for a while. Yeah. Right. We'll get into crypto in a little bit, but I want to maybe just start with, maybe you can describe your existing product suite today. We built our own banking core back. You know, we started that in 2015, 2016, and that's highly unusual compared to maybe our competitors. In fact, in almost all banks rent their core, right? So they, mm-hmm. you know, they don't really do that. We did this out of necessity primarily, but also because looking at the future, understanding that a multi-product strategy would be really necessary, encompassing both traditional finance and this new thing, blockchain stuff. We recognized that we would probably have to own a lot of our own tech. And so we went about building that. And so Current is built its foundational level on our own core and technology, which is really, really exciting, yields cost advantages, as well as product innovation, like I've just mentioned. So we started off with a team product in 2017. Turns out when you're building your own banking core, you need to build a lot of things. And so we weren't ready for prime time. We needed to find a cohort to prove everything on to our investors. And, and also because parents and their teens really uh, were left out, uh, teens especially were left out of the existing banking infrastructure due to high costs and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we launched that. And then our full checking account product launched two years later in 2019, which is an earned wage access product, which means that we're really focusing on young adults still, people who are 25 to 32, somewhere there, who are working paycheck to paycheck, who have been uncomfortably left out and don't feel welcome in the existing banking network, using cash, prepaid, things like that. And banks obviously, not maybe not intentionally, actively omitting this demographic, but really just not welcoming them because they have high fixed costs. It's really hard to sort of square that round hole for a lot of banks when they're really focusing on deposits and there really are no deposits. It's a spend experience, right? And so your right. business model has to be fundamentally different. And so we started in the spend model. We started with people who were really overlooked, collateralized differently, who weren't really savers. And so that was the bread and butter of current for the last sort of three, four years. Um, we've grown to a decent amount. And only recently have we started stretching our legs into a slightly more affluent demographic with our high yield savings that got launched in January. Right, right. So I just want to go back to that banking core because, as you say, it's not very typical. I don't know of any uh, digital bank that has decided to undertake such a process, uh, such a, a massive project. You must have spent like the first, what, two to three years just with engineers doing coding. You were a trader. You didn't have any knowledge, I presume, in core banking systems. So just tell us a little bit about that process. You're right. Totally unqualified is probably where you're going. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd be right. You'd be right. I think when it comes to like big step function changes, you need to know enough to be dangerous, but not everything. Otherwise, you'd never do it. You ask anyone in the existing banking industry if they'd like to build a core, and it'd be a unanimous no, because they know too much, right? And we didn't know enough. Right. Um, because we were playing in this blockchain space, and we understood the power of open source, open ledger technology, as well as the ability to program contracts and all the rest of it, we recognize that you know, most of the regulation sits in the incumbent industry, in the incumbent financial system. And so there's going to be a gearing mechanism whereby for most people, a debit card or a credit card works perfectly fine. 
right? Mm -hmm. It really works fine in, in merchants and stores and all the rest of it. But when you wanted to go into sort of more complicated, maybe cross-border or international type things, which most people, most domestic consumers don't really access, you're going to need this new system. And so making sure that they talk together was really a paramount sort of consideration for us. What we didn't realize, obviously, at the time was this was a ginormous project. <laughs> and, like, and like, so, you know, the unknown unknowns were like quite large. And so when it comes to trading, if you're managing traders as a managerial aspect, engineers are very similar to traders. And I wrote a blog post years ago about that when I first sort of came over, highly competent and functional, but at the same time, sort of unwieldy in, in a group to manage and they have their own performance metrics and they want to do what they want to do. And so very similar to traders. And so I felt very comfortable sort of wrangling very highly talented individuals to build something that was exceptional. So in terms of like the high level, it, it felt very similar. In terms of the details, it, it was completely orthogonal. <laughs> right. Let's start talking about the blockchain uh, piece because uh, it was recently that I saw that you have a partnership with Akala, I think I'm saying that right, moving into DeFi. So just explain exactly what you're doing there. So Polkadot system is considered a layer zero, sort of above all these other layer ones. So layer mm -hmm. zero, layer one, layer two. So Polkadot is an interchain protocol whereby it will move assets and value between these other chains. And you've heard of these other chains, they're called Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, things like that. So, mm -hmm. And so those things have network effects that will then have apps and sort of layer twos that will be built on top, which the consumers will interface with. Most of the value is sitting at the L1 right now. And most people are finding it very hard to switch between all those L1s. And so Polkadot is right up there with you know helping us understand and navigate between all these networks. And then Akala is a decentralized app whereby you can do DeFi things, but we can go into that later. But there's exceptional value compared to the incumbent financial network, although there is some other risks we're obviously trying to scope as we go forward. This is an extremely complex, emergent, nascent technology, but it is being built and it is going to change how we do things. And mm -hmm. so, you know, the biggest but currently I'll have is right now current in the old world, we are facilitating networks. So we are bridging the Fedwire, ACH, incumbent banking payment system. That's what we're connecting to through our partner banks. Um, we're also connecting to Visa and our secondary networks through the card networks, through merchants, and we're facilitating payments. And this is extremely complicated systems where there's lots of value in that chain, all sort of pulling at different points, making sure that the customer experience is seamless and they're getting exactly what they want. Payments, you know, as you know, is extremely complicated and you know, it's like a tip of the iceberg. The actual thing at the end takes years and years and years to perfect and get right. And of course, now we're seeing multiples of these networks emerge and they're all going to be doing different things. They're all going to be, well, most of them are going to be global, not all of them. And so making sure that we're part of those networks is what we're about. So we're running validators on Polkadot, things like that. And that's very similar to us being part of a Visa network. It's the best analogy I could give. Obviously, you're a centralized organization. You're a corporation. So are you planning on being like a bridge to DeFi for your users so they can maybe go out and uh, borrow money through the decentralized networks, you know, go out onto Aave or Compound or places like that? Or what's your vision there? Exactly. So it's still emerging. And just the same way we bridge the banking network to the card network. So you can take your money from your employer and go and pay for stuff in McDonald's or whatever it is. These networks will have very specific use cases of which we will then facilitate DeFi being one of them. So you remember stack lending, securities lending, right? Mm -hmm. You have a, a higher interest than the risk-free rate. There is some element of contract coding risk. There's some element of liquidity risk, but they're pretty small. 
given the technology. And so obviously DeFi enables this. And so enables a basically spec lending whereby you're lending out either some of your crypto assets or your borrowing dollars or some form of stablecoin against them. And so they're providing in a world whereby the incumbent financial system has negative real interest rates, mm-hmm. right? So negative value, the longer you leave that money in the system, the more purchasing power you lose. Well, these are exceptional. And of course, inflation reported 7-8%, right? When, when really, like for some people, it's 15 or 18% when depending on the basket of goods or whatever you consume. And so having access to something that can even just tread water, I think is extremely powerful. And we need simplicity and ease of access to something like that. And it's not part of this incumbent network, right? And that's the whole point of it. That's why there is exceptional value still. And so making sure that we can get people who need it the most, who have little in savings, but could hopefully stay still, if not make a bit of money in these tumultuous times, I think is really, really important. I've dabbled in DeFi and I wouldn't call myself an expert it's kind of painful to go out and try and do some of these things that everyone talks about on Twitter that is you know, like staking different tokens and trying to earn yield. And then you're paying all these gas fees. And it's just, it's reminded me of the days of, you know, I'm old enough to remember DOS, MS-DOS, then going from DOS to Windows. And it reminds me of those days where you've got to know what you're doing. If you've got a command line prompt, you've got to know what you're doing. And same with DeFi. What I thought would happen when I first got into this is it would be just as easy as making a stock trade or something, but it is not that. So is part of your thesis about being that on-ramp? So you've nailed it. So there's no shortage of people highlighting the same problems. I tell you where the real rub and where people get sort of stuck is that the reason why most of this stuff is built in that way is because it's by engineers for engineers, right? right? And so it's extremely complicated. And it's the same in the 90s with DOS. It was by engineers for engineers, right? And so what unlocked it obviously was you know Steve Jobs and Apple with the GUI and the mouse and making sure that the user interface and the simplicity of choice were there. That was a real unlock. And then you had things like AOL, which basically monolined the internet and said, the internet is a really complicated thing and you don't understand it. So here is the internet in a box, right? You just turn it on and you have AOL, name and all that other stuff. We're in this era whereby there is an opportunity to simplify the user interface. There is an opportunity to have wall gardens even in the short term, we've even seen it with some of these networks like Solana and et cetera like that, that effectively centralized. And it will be a very narrow window as we've seen, right? You'll have a narrow window of like five to 10 years or whatever it is, whereby you're onboarding the majority of Americans, the majority of the world into this new world so they understand it. And I think, you know, current has been purposefully, deliberately built so that we can take full ownership of this strategy. Really interesting. As you say, you've built the company this way back... Tell you what, it wasn't an obvious move back in 2015, 2016, that's for sure. So, uh, no, could... well, you should ask, ask my investors. <laughs> no, I don't think anyone thought I was that smart, but now right, I'm just starting right, to look right. smarter. <laughs> okay, well, I, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about influencer marketing because this is something that I was really interested um, about. I've got a 13-year-old girl who um, plays Minecraft and is a huge fan of many of the YouTubers and uh, including Mr. Beast. And uh, I think I heard a podcast a while back with one of your people talking about how current was the reason Mr. Beast does what he does, from what I gather, Um, which is give away money, basically. He just gives away money. And he's uh, doing very, very well. And he gives away like serious money. You're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes. And uh, if the listeners don't know about Mr. Beast, just Google him. You'll get the hang of it pretty quickly. He's still super young. He's in his early 20s, I think. But So tell us about your partnership with Mr. Beast and influencer marketing in general. 
you hit on all the salient points. Um, Adam Howdy, he runs marketing here. He gave Jimmy Donaldson's his real name, Mr. Beast, his first $10,000 and gave it to a homeless person uh, mm-hmm. uh, on a YouTube channel many, many years ago. And so whilst it wasn't current, it was definitely an active current employee right now. So he's been formative. Adam has been formative in Jimmy's life and he's been formative in growing our influencer marketing strategy. So mm-hmm. when you're dealing with the product offering that we have in teens and and sort of young adults, like 28-year-olds, we were looking at strategies of basically getting eyeballs, right? Getting attention. Now, this is a world in which, and you have a 13-year-old daughter, I have a 12-year-old daughter, so very similar. Getting their attention is impossible, right? The noise <laughs> level, <laughs> apart from being a dad of a, of a 12 or 13-year-old girl, which is already hard, right? But the noise barrier, for piercing anyone's sort of bubble in terms of getting their attention is extremely hard now because we're sort of bombarded by multiple channels multiple times a day. What ends up happening, I think, is we're in this attention deficit sort of era whereby only very few trusted people can ever break through. Only like eight or nine for each person. That's really like the core idea. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, okay, who would stretch all the way down to, we have a team right at 13 to 18, which is totally free if you parent, you know, sign up and all the rest of it um, and get your kids on there. You know, we've got this 18 to, let's call it 35-year-old Earnway Jackson's product. Who could bridge both of those two products and be trusted, wouldn't feel cheesy, would actually believe in the product, right? The mission of the company to improve financial outcomes for people. And so, you know, talking to Adam early days, I was just like, I love what he was doing. I like he was in another company at the time, and I was very patiently trying to snipe him out of that company. And so he joined us like three years ago. I think it was the other day. He's built up this amazing team, sort of world-class team, pioneering team in influencer marketing. The way I would describe influencer marketing, and this is not anyone else's analogy, is like the difference between fracking and oil drilling. You're in the Mexican Gulf, right? And you've got like the shell oil rig and it's just drilling. That's Facebook. That's Facebook. And it's just like, you know, it's expensive to start up and all the rest of it. But once you get going, you know what your flow is. You, you got it. Well, influencer marketing is like fracking. Is There's multiple wells. Overall, the cost is much, much higher. These are like sales relationships. You've got to really get an aligned with each one. But this untold, unknown amount of sort of oil that can be out there, that if you're good at it, you can really sort of make it work for you. And you have to have the right demographic. Don't get me wrong. If you if your average age of your target demo is like 55 years old, it's not going to work, right? right. It's not going to work. So, <laughs> so we just happen to have the right product, the right stuff for this to work. And so we do extremely well. It's like one of our most cost-efficient, most active channels. And also it's cool. Let's be honest. Like Facebook, right. no, I don't want to disparage them, but it's kind of sucks, right? It's kind of sucks. <laughs> you know, you're, in, you're sort of interrupting someone's like, Instagram scrolling thing. Whereas this is like, it's content. We're sponsoring content and people are getting content for the money that we're putting to work. And it's cool. That's cool. So can you just tell us an example of exactly what you're doing? I mean, I think my daughter told me sometime you're giving away like $20 or $50 or something to open up an account. I mean, what exactly are you doing? And any metrics you could share would be fantastic. So with Mr. Beast, Jimmy has a specific deal with us, but like per video it will cost X amount. And then there will be various contractual things that will enable, you know, signups and all the rest of it. Typically, he'll do a video. So that X amount of money will basically pay for the video or most of it. His videos are extremely expensive. He does one mm-hmm. once every whatever. This is the same for almost every influencer. And so they need some money to buy the Lamborghini that they're going to torch or the <laughs> or, or the underground they're going to give away, whatever the stunt is. You know, this is, again, attention. It's grabbing attention, making sure it's great content and all the rest of it. So really that money is doing that. And then there is the sell, the upsell, the, you know, either putting it into the contents. We've had other influencers who have done long format 
content videos, which are phenomenal, right? And then currents sort of weaved into it as they get the card out at the, you know, the gas station or whatever it is. And so the, all these things are different strategies in making us, you know, a trusted brand that is a perfectly natural part of life. Then there's the user referral bonuses or whatever it is. And, and typically we'll move between value props and what we're trying to offer at various times obviously we have high yield interest right now we have crypto coming in a year a year in a month <laughs> hopefully it's not a year and so you know as we go into these new partnerships they'll be you know highlighting different value coming forward and so that's generally how it works right so how many different influencers do you work with i think we did about a thousand videos in 2021 which is basically a thousand influencers so wow so obviously it's a long tail there right because mr beast i don't have my daughter said he's got like up over 90 million subscribers, I think now. Yeah. That's obviously a massive audience, but there's probably a plenty at the 1 million subscriber mark, right? There's a lot. And so you get the long tail. So as more people join, you know, they see the older videos. So there's all that stuff. It's a bit like TV in that way, right? Like, or if you sponsor a sports team and they win a championship, you kind of have this evergreen sort of thing going on. And it's the same for us with influencers. If we sponsor an influencer, you know, like Adam's done with Jimmy and you do it early and they end up breaking out, well, then that's just this crazy evergreen thing that's always going to be there. You're not just part like a sponsor, you're also part of history, you're also part of the story. And I think it's just extra value that is brand value. It's really hard to to nail that price down, but it, it's something more. Right, right. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. So can you give us a sense of the scale you guys are at today? I mean, anything you can share about, you know, number of accounts, just any kind of metrics? Yeah, so we're nearly 4 million. We're late threes in our products. Yeah, it's been crazy. 2020 was a very generous year to us because everyone's staying at home and obviously branch networks were struggling. And so we're sort of optimized for that future. The future got brought forward towards us. 2021, still amazing, great year, but you saw people start to return to normal and there was more competition, I should add. There was a lot more competition. So, and you're starting to see it in some of the public company comps as well, right? So in PayPal and things like that. Those are the kind of numbers and the kind of years we've had. 2022 will be dictated and sort of dominated by product releases, multi-product strategy, and making sure that we can get into multiples. If we can, I'd love to over the next couple of years, get to sort of 10 million, 15 million open accounts. That would be great. That's where I'm trying to get to in the double digits there. And that will only come because, you know, we have new products, new revenue streams, and we're able to create a holistic product that makes sense. And there's sort of exceptional value with the sum of the parts versus those individual ones being in other places. Right, right. Okay, so then maybe we could take a step back for a minute and just, I'd love to get your sense on the digital banking landscape today. It's, as you said, it's got more competitive. You know, there's also just lots of new product sales like changes happening faster than ever. But what are the trends that you're paying closest attention to? You know, with the B2B2C market plus all the new entrants, who have all come in in the last two years. I think 20% of all VC dollars was fintech in 2021, right. something like that. Mm -hmm. So what you're going to see, and the way I describe this, I'm sorry for listeners that are not into Bitcoin, but like the difficulty rating, <laughs> the hash power has gone up, right? So we have more and more money going into the system. And so this necessitates an order of magnitude higher of customer value, right? Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. There's no way that that all can work. And so you're seeing the rise of the super app for want of a cheesier term. It's pretty bad. But what it really means is, is that, you know, superior value around engagement, superior value, bigger than the sum of the parts. And so that can only be done by truly competent and technical teams and people who really understand a lot of different things in fintech. Because if any corporate can now add a debit card to it, 
like just adding a debit card by definition doesn't work, right? And so you, they're not solving any specific problem. And so that's the real trend. You can see it in the public markets. They're all talking about the same things. And you'll see it in the private markets as well with us, with everyone else going towards the same thing. I think the other trend, given the macro backdrop, you know, and I would say it was going this way towards the end of 2021, and it's definitely cementing it in 2022, is this um, move towards credit. I think a lot of people are getting into lending. The market's rewarding credit plays, and it's a natural progression for most of these neobanks, including us, is that you know we're already doing earn wage access, right? Which is a very safe way of doing credit. And so there's a natural progression here of like, okay, we've got all these models, this data models and all this stuff that we know a lot about a lot of people. How does it make sense for us to take this to the next step, which is more traditional banking, right? And so the banks, they probably always feared it. And so not that I know anything, but I'd suggest that over the next two years, you'll see more and more credit products coming out. Right, right. So then when you look at the landscape of your target market, I'm mainly talking about not the teenagers, but the 18 to 35 is your primary competitor, do you think, are the fintechs? Is it DeFi? Is it traditional banks? Who are you competing against? As noisy as it can get between other fintechs, it really is a very small proportion of our growth. So 90% of our growth is our full checking account, 95%, something like that. And then in terms of our growth of that, we are slightly different to some of our other competitors in the sense of we've onboarded people into the financial system. So up until about last year, it was about 50% of all new accounts never had a bank account before. Wow. Right? So yeah, it's crazy. So if you look at that unbanked number, the underserved number that certain senators and people will bash everyone over the head with, it's going down because companies like current, like right? we actually right. have that mission. We've been doing it for five years. Mm -hmm. Guess what? We're, it's working. You know, we haven't traditionally run up against anyone. Now going forward, we will be starting to bump up against a few of our fintech buddies, uh, frenemies, but the majority of our growth has been from other banks. So traditional large cap as well as some community. And so there's 9,000 banks, there's 10,000 credit unions. I don't want to sound facetious, but it's kind of going one way, right? So everyone wants a more modern 24 seven, fully complete financial services product, one-stop shop that speaks to them in language and a UX and UI that they can understand and they can get behind. Right, right. That segues into my last question there. I'm curious about your vision for current because you're a little different to the other you know, neo banks that are out there, digital banks. You've got this, your own core and you've got a whole, feels like from what you've been saying, the sort of latent blockchain business that is about to potentially come forth. But what is your vision for current? So this is what you get when a, a foreign exchange, an interest rate trader runs a financial services company. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is what you get. If you ever wondered, this is what it looks like. You know, the vision for the company is, well, I'd say the actual vision for the company is to connect the world financially through platform of new technologies, right? And so we've had that vision for seven years. And so we haven't gone to any new countries and we're starting to plug in those new technologies, right? When you think about, you know, earlier in our conversation, we are really simplifying access to networks. That's really at the very highest level what we're doing, right? New technologies, new networks. And so the vision of the company is to make sure that we provide no barrier to entry for all these new networks and all the old networks so that people can then do the things that they need to do to improve their financial outcome, right? And so a lot of access to financial services, a lot of access to a better future have been not understanding what to do, not understanding there are options and what you can do, and basically having someone around to really sort of, you know, push you and help you in these areas. You know, it's like auto lending or refis and all the rest of it. There's a lot 
of traditional incumbent finance that is incentivized to give you a worse deal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really incentivized that yep. way. If people rely on politicians to create pressured regulations to then create environment and like, it's just too slow, right? And so why not have a company that is fully aligned with the end user, like to get the most value to you in, in as quick a time possible and get your money to you. We're good. We can take, we're so low cost as a tech firm. We don't have all this stuff, these fancy golf uh, opens to sponsor and all the rest of it, right? We don't have to do that. We don't, we don't have any of that fat. So we just want to make sure that we can improve people's financial outcome, make sure that you know, people participate in what is becoming the future right now, which is current, I should add. Right, right. Okay, that's a great place to leave it. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was great chatting with you. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be here. Well, so many interesting things there that I could really just dig into. But one thing I want to highlight is the thing what Stuart talked about, 50% of their customers are opening a bank account for the first time. And they're getting a really sophisticated, easy to use fintech platform that they're going with. And that's where I feel like we're at a point now where fintech has made the user experience so much better than it was even five years ago, certainly 10 years ago, that really anyone who wants a bank account is going to be able to get one and they're going to be able to have a good experience. So we talk about the unbanked and the underbanked a lot and fintech to me has really, I wouldn't say 100% solved the problem, but boy, we're getting close to where we have the tools where people can open a bank account and take advantage of really sophisticated features that are simple and easy to use and a pleasure to use. And that, I think, is going to make a huge difference in the economy of America and the world for that matter. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.